Wolfing Down Food Science. And had I but one penny in the world, thou shouldst have it by gingerbread. <laughs> William Shakespeare said that in Love's Labor's Lost. Well, in this episode of Food Science by the Fireside, we're going to talk a little bit about gingerbread. And this is a current events topic. <laughs> it's been a holiday tradition. I mean, you know, you got to have a gingerbread house or at least some gingerbread people. <laughs> At least at our house. <laughs> totally agree. Well, I heard that there was something going on in Asheville um, all about gingerbread houses, right? Is there a competition or something? Yeah, there's a national competition. Every year they host um, a national gingerbread house competition. And you can compete if you're young. So, you know, that even if you're under 10, you can put together your gingerbread house and submit it. And up to professionals submit um all kinds of amazing things that are completely 100% edible, but some sometimes just incredible engineering goes into the structure of these things. So. Rather oh. a gingerbread mansion. That's from, right. From yes. them. There we go. So if you're in the Asheville area, I'm looking at the website now, uh, November 28th through January 2nd. So really the entire holiday season almost at the Omni Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina. So pretty cool. All right. Considering I've never made a gingerbread house before, I think this could be a good debut for me. But <laughs> I think I need to know exactly what is gingerbread and if I need to make it from scratch or if I can just prepare it from the store. I'm not sure. How does how do we go about doing that? Gingerbread's really cool. It has a, a lot of history based in, in Europe. And then once it came over to the United States or to America, those people bought those traditions with them and we put our own spins on it. But um, the gingerbread that's used in gingerbread houses is is definitely um, a type of pretty dry shortbread. Um, and it, it's meant to be structural. So it's, it's pretty crispy kind of stuff. <laughs> You know, that's my favorite texture. So, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's pretty dry and crispy. Well, maybe we should start with ginger, um, which is such an integral part of the gingerbread. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, uh, comes from uh, comes from China and came uh, on the Silk Road to Europe. So that's how ginger arrived and became a part of this wonderful dessert that we have around the holidays. So. Yeah, it usually has a lot of other spices in it, too, um, like cloves and nutmeg and cinnamon, all those kind of like brown spice holiday spices that we think about. That, but ginger definitely is is prominent in it. I've even seen people put black pepper in it um, to give it a little kick. I'm fascinated by the antioxidant properties that are in ginger. A lot of people use ginger for healing purposes, medicinal purposes. I wonder if it translates when you're making a gingerbread house, if you can, <laughs> if you can consider it a healthy dessert. But um, yeah, in general, ginger has been known to boost your immune system, uh, treat nausea and many more things. Yeah, it makes me wonder if you could use gingerbread, you know, 
if you've had just a little bit too much of, well, whatever, uh, for the holidays. Um, <laughs> because it does, there, there, is some, there is some very, uh, very solid medical evidence showing that it's very good at, at battling nausea. So, mm-hmm. um, so I just wonder if, you know, maybe, maybe having some, you know, little gingerbread uh, cookies or whatever around the house maybe that's a good thing around the holidays given uh given the tendency to overindulge in a variety of ways looks like there are two uh sort of theories about making gingerbread and one is as Paige mentioned that structural one which i think that to me is the most interesting so we'll probably spend the most time on that one but but there is a soft gingerbread versus a crispy gingerbread and and so uh, thinking back to previous episodes, one of the things that we've talked about is plasticizers. Um, don't worry, I won't make that Kardashians comment again. But <laughs> one of the things we talked about was was plasticizers and uh, butter. You know, if you add enough of it is going to result in a soft texture. So you can make sort of a cake like or a soft cookie texture if you add enough butter. But. We're going to focus on the recipe that um, that results in a much more crispy texture. And uh, and so that does have some uh, butter in it, but it has uh, it has just uh, just less of it. And so that just mm-hmm. kind of gets to um, how much of that plasticizer you put in. Right. For mostly starch systems, that fat does a good job of getting in the way of those interactions between the starch and and uh, making the dough very pliable. Um, so for like a gingerbread family, if you were going to make that mm-hmm. <laughs> to go around your gingerbread house, you might be able to use a different type of dough that is more um, more palatable, more edible than the gingerbread house. So although I don't know many people who eat their gingerbread house at the end of the Christmas season <laughs> after it's been out for like a month. But um but yeah, so it's just it's a pretty low moisture dough. Um one of the key ingredients in it besides the ginger and all the yummy spices is molasses. Um so it gives it that dark color. Um and I just think I think where molasses comes from is pretty interesting because I you know, it's not a, as common in a, as an ingredient now as it used to be. Uh, I think but, like a dark sweet tar yeah. Molasses. <laughs> that's, that's, that doesn't sound like you like molasses. <laughs> I just uh, haven't been acquainted, quite honestly. It is really thick. So it, it always reminds me of corn syrup, that kind of very thick, gloppy syrup. But it's basically a derivative of the process of making sugar or sucrose, crystallizing sucrose. And so they crush sugar cane and then heat it up. And that heating process darkens everything. And once they get to a certain point, sucrose will begin to crystallize. And then everything that's left is the molasses. So once you crystallize out the majority of the sucrose, then the remainder is, I I believe that molasses is mostly glucose and all the other minerals and salts and things that were in the sugar cane. So um, it actually is. Has a higher nutrition content. Yeah, it actually is a really good source of things like um, iron. 
so if you are feeling a little anemic, a tablespoon of molasses might help you out a little bit. <laughs> and we, sh- we should mention that 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 iron isn't necessarily naturally present in the sugar cane. So the iron partly comes from the gears that you use to grind the sugar cane uh, in order to make it easier to extract. So um, in a way, this is a sort of a good kind of contamination, if you will, of uh, of metals into food. So we think a lot about uh, concerns where we we want to avoid um, parts of the processing material or equipment getting into food. That's generally not a great thing. But in this case, it it actually augments the, the iron content of that finished molasses. So that's kind of an interesting interesting uh, byproduct of this process. Yeah, there's there's a lot of minerals in there, you know, calcium and magnesium, all of those types of things that are generally in plants from the soil anyway. But just by the fact that you're concentrating all of this makes a big difference. And then the color itself is from the caramelization that's happening when they are heating this slurry of, of uh, cane sugar extract up and then crystallizing out the sugar. So that heat actually produces this dark brown caramel color because the sugars are reacting to each other. So it's it's not dark brown because it's contaminated with a whole bunch of stuff. It's, <laughs> it's a natural reaction that happens with sugars and heat. So. Right. If you remember way back from, I, I guess that was season one, we were talking about the idea of heating sugars. And then at a certain point, those sugars start to uh, start to start to uh, essentially degrade into components that are no longer sugars, and then they can start linking into chains. So mm-hmm. essentially, you're going to have a mixture of sugar. There's plenty of sugar left, and then the, the the brown pigment component of caramelization is really the result of those um, of those sugars first breaking down, and then those uh, breakdown products linking up to make those those pigments. Yep. So there's there's a bit of the food chemistry. Now, Paige, before before we started recording, you had mentioned the different types of molasses. So I was curious mm-hmm. about, OK, what are the different types? Because I've heard of uh, blackstrap molasses and different types, but I really wasn't sure what that stuff was. Yeah, so it's. <laughs> I don't know if I could say it's like olive oil, but the first press and the second, you know, um, but the first crystallization that happens sometimes that's called first syrup. Um, So it's like lighter in color. Um, And in the southern part of the United States, um, that's called cane syrup. So if you find that on the market, it is from that general process of purifying out sucrose from cane, um, sugar cane. But then the next one is called grade B molasses, right? And so that's from the second boiling and the second extraction of sugar. And the blackstrap molasses is boiled even more. So it's very concentrated. And so it tends to be a lot more bitter if you are sensitive to that type of thing because of all of the bitter breakdown products that are in there. And then it also has a pretty high sodium content because you are concentrating all these minerals. Um, So the things like the amount of acidity that is present, um, the amount of uh, ionic content that's there in the form of salts and nutrients, minerals that we need is much higher. And so you have to be careful 
that you're not substituting blackstrap molasses for regular molasses because it does behave differently in the cookie and it has different flavor components. Okay. I have tasted some molasses that has sort of that bitter after Mm -hmm. aftertaste. So maybe that's what it, what it was. Yeah. It can definitely amp up that maybe not so favorable side of the flavor. So. Well, speaking of, not so favorable. We we've spoken about this idea of sheer thickening and sheer thinning of things. Uh, in the case of sheer thinning, things like ketchup and things like salad dressing, where we want something to flow really nicely out of a bottle or whatever. And then once that ketchup lands on the French fry, we want it to stay there. And once that salad dressing lands on our lettuce, we want it to stay there. And that is this idea that as long as it's being uh, sheared or something is happening to it, it thins. Um, well, back in 1919, there was a barrel with 12,000 tons of molasses in the north of Boston. And that barrel broke and it sent a wave of molasses, which, uh, according to historical records, was 25 feet high and was moving at 35 miles per hour. Now, uh, that molasses had been uh, heated to a certain extent, so it flowed a lot faster, right? So this is not that molasses flowing uphill in the winter. This is molasses (laughs) flowing downhill, and it was warm warm molasses. So it was moving very quickly. And uh, the fact that it was sheer thinning means that you couldn't swim your way out of it. You couldn't, you know, if you were caught in it, you know, this this was going to be this was probably going to be it. And uh, in fact, there were 21 lives lost and 150 injuries as a result of this um, of this molasses tank break. So, yeah. uh, And and then, of course, as you might imagine, for days afterwards, um, there everything was just covered with this sticky goo and this uh and this this material so yeah it it apparently hung around from january even into the summer it was essentially in the harbor once they washed it in into the water into the summer so i can imagine that hung around for a good long time yes legend says there's still molasses just on the crevices of boston's floors (laughs) oh boy there you go. Yeah, I can't so, imagine the insect problems you'd have after that, too. <laughs> yeah. So getting back to holiday cheer um, from from that that uh, not so cheerful episode. Um, so we have molasses as a key ingredient in these amazing cookies. And just kind of looking at the breakdown of the ingredients uh, to every uh, to every four cups of flour or so, you're you're going to add um, you're going to add close to a cup of molasses and butter and brown sugar. So these three things um, are going to be mixed with the flour. And as Paige mentioned, um, it's fairly low in moisture. You know, the the water is coming from the molasses, and so you've got you've got essentially butter, sugar, and um, and this syrup mixed into the dough. So it's not super uh, moist. And uh, and so that well, helps. And there's some eggs, too, I have to jump in and say. So there's yep. some moisture for some, from the eggs that gives you some nice protein for structure. 
True. Very true. And also nice uh, gives it probably some uh, some nice Christmas as well in the finished in the finished product. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that so, of course, we're going to add uh, ginger to uh, to those cookies and then the obligatory baking powder and baking soda, as well as some salt. And uh, that's that's really it for the recipe. It's a fairly simple one. Um, yeah, so th- this gets back to the baking soda, gets back to why it's important to make sure that you're not using blackstrap molasses, um, because the molasses is acidic, right? Um, so you've got your basic uh, third grade volcano scientific, <laughs> <laughs> you know, your science fair volcano here happening, maybe less dramatic, hopefully, in your oven. But, you know, anytime you add baking soda, you have to have an acid to produce that CO2 and get some air in the system or some bubbles in the system. And so you you need to use that molasses because that's where your acid is coming from to react with the basic basic baking soda um, and the brown sugar. So, um, so yeah, make sure you don't use blackstrap there. <laughs> yeah, so we should say, not, not in the case of soft drinks, which are typically acidic, but whenever you see soda, like baking soda, that means, that means high pH. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a base. And right. so um, that, acid-base reaction that you got out of that uh, second grade volcano project um <laughs> that was that's that was the base and then uh i guess most of the time you might use vinegar but in this case right. the acids from the molasses are reacting with that base and creating that um slight rise yeah. um yeah that we this want. isn't so, fluffy like bread but <laughs> yes we don't want you do not want fluffy <laughs> fluffy gingerbread cookies they do not need to be six inches tall no um, no no yeah. Just a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, just a tiny bit. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know making gingerbread could be so daring. I'll have to make sure to follow the recipe properly so my house doesn't get flooded with molasses and I don't <laughs> explode anything. <laughs> yes. All yeah. the chemistry in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the other cool things I, I saw uh, about these recipes and this is common with a to a lot of cookie recipes is this idea that you take the dough and you don't make cookies right away so you take the dough and you uh carefully wrap it up so you don't lose any of that water that's that's in the dough um and then you let it sit um very often in a cool place um so why would you do that why would you let the dough sit instead of like going ahead and making those wonderful cookies? Well, I think part of it, especially for a gingerbread recipe and sugar cookies, is those are typically rolled doughs, right? So you're not dropping a glop of dough on the um, glop is probably a bad word. Sounds gross. <laughs> Sounds um, like a great word. <laughs> a, a portion of the dough on the cookie glop, sheet. Glop, glop. <laughs> <laughs> you have to roll it out and, and then cut those cookies. And to do that, you need a fairly stiff dough. Um, and so if you didn't refrigerate it, it would be too pliable for it to be rolled out efficiently and cut cleanly. So it also helps those cuts that you're cutting out um, stay distinct in a certain shape and not just melt into one big blob or glop or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for rolled doughs, that's really important, but they're you know, there have been recently a whole lot of articles that I've seen about um, actually aging or resting, like even chocolate chip cookie dough, a drop cookie dough, so yes. that all of those um, 
proteins that are there in the flour and, and whatnot can get um, hydrated really well. And everything sort of comes to an equilibrium before you bake it. Yes, I, I will say that chocolate chip cookie uh, recipes turn out much better if you rest the dough. So, um, yeah, that's that's a common theme in in um, different types of of uh, uh, food production. So we, we rest ice cream mix overnight. Mm-hmm. And part of that is to make sure that we get everything completely mixed and all of the things that are associating with water, say, um, associated with water. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of the things that I was really surprised to learn from the Ben and Jerry's ice cream <laughs> recipe book. You need to rest your ice cream mix overnight. And in a similar way, this idea of resting these cookie doughs, including gingerbread, just produces a much better product. So rest your dough if you're going <laughs> to if you're going to uh, make cookies um, it will turn out so much better. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It controls the spread of the cookie. It can actually change the texture of it to be still pretty chewy in the middle and crispier on the edges, at least for chocolate chip cookies. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that happens that changes in the refrigerator. <laughs> Although it looks like it's just resting. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So in a way, this this episode is really an invitation to participate in uh, quite a bit of history. We've seen references to uh, to gingerbread and ginger related products going back even to 2400 B.C. I don't know how reliable those references are, but uh, there are uh, quite reliable references uh, going back to um, to Europe in the 15th century. And then, of course, moving forward, uh, apparently George Washington's mom was very uh was was very interested in soft gingerbread mm-hmm. uh type products so it has a lot of history to it um we hope you take the chance to uh to check out gingerbread um i certainly will make a house <laughs> yes <laughs> so i have a recipe book at home i think it's dory greenspan's recipe book no it's not dory greenspan it's another author um, I'll put that in the, the show note links, but she has a like huge chunk of this cook, Christmas cookie cookbook at the end that is instructions on how to build a gingerbread house cathedral. It's Notre Dame. Oh, so, yeah. I've always I always say, like, when I retire, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start like in June <laughs> and I'm just going to make this cathedral. It'll just be a project. Wow. Okay. All right. I have to check out. And what's the name of the cookbook again? <laughs> it's Christmas Cookies. Christmas Cookies. Okay. And I'll have to, I think her name is Rose. And that's not very helpful because it's not her last name. It's her first name. <laughs> okay. I'll have to look it up. I will put it in the show notes because it's pretty amazing. Wonderful. Well, this has been uh, quite a historical tour. We we started with William Shakespeare. We uh We've traveled down the Silk Road with uh, with ginger. Um, we had a, a great flood of molasses in Boston. And uh, right now, if uh, you want to travel out to Asheville, there is a contest going on with um, amazing gingerbread houses. So uh, lots and lots going on. So we hope that this was a uh, useful Food Science by the Fireside episode. Mm-hmm. Hope you have a great uh, rest of your week, everybody. 
If you'd like to find out more about our podcast, Wolfing Down Food Science, please check us out at wolfingdownfoodscience.buzzsprout.com, where you can find our show notes and email address. You can find out more about NC State, our department, and FS201, the amazing course that has brought us all together, on our website as well. Please don't forget to subscribe to Wolfing Down Food Science wherever you stream your podcasts like Spotify and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in to Wolfing Down Food Science. See you next time.